Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast. Today, for episode 236, we're talking about stablecoins and whether they are bullish or bearish for Bitcoin. Nick Carter is with Castle Island Ventures. He's a well-known author and podcaster in the space also. And so we explore some of these questions around what stablecoins are, who uses them, what kinds of volumes we're talking about, what sort of platform risks are involved, and obviously some of the factors around whether they are bullish or bearish for Bitcoin and what the outlook is for stablecoins going forward. This show brought to you by swanbitcoin.com, the best place to auto stack your Bitcoin in the US with incredibly easy setup and low fees. Swan recently announced availability in New York. They are now available in all 50 US states. They've got a range of new features like XPUB support, so you can use that when you are wanting to automatically withdraw to a new address each time. Swan's service is built around regular stacking, and if you want to wire money in for a special smash buy, well, the support is coming for that very soon also. They're Bitcoin only, they're focused on teaching people to self-custody, so send all your new coiner friends there. This is a company focused on helping customers stack sats safely and easily. Go to swanbitcoin.com slash levera to sign up. Are you looking for an insured custodian? Check out Knox, a Bitcoin custodian dedicated to ensuring their insurance protection covers the full value of their customers' assets. For example, suppose a fiduciary wants to hold $250 million of Bitcoin with Knox. Knox will seek to obtain $250 million of insurance dedicated exclusively to that account and adjustable to volatility. There's no fractional coverage here or narrow scope. Insurance for what it's worth, a tool to transfer risk. If you are a Bitcoin company, investment fund, trust, or family office, check out Knox for your insured custody. Go to knoxcustody.com. Lend at HodlHodl is a global Bitcoin-backed lending platform, so you can lend and borrow anonymously on your own terms. HodlHodl offers a peer-to-peer lending solution, ensuring a secure and transparent collateral storage system by providing unique multi-signature escrow for each deal, so you can grow your savings and earn attractive returns on your investments. We're talking about stablecoins in this episode. If you've got some lying around, create your offers and earn interest by lending on Lend at HodlHodl. Or if you hold bitcoins and you need some liquidity, you can borrow stablecoins and keep on hodling. With HodlHodl's Lend platform, you set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rates. Go check it out at lend.hodlhodl.com. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks for having me back. This is either my second or third appearance. I, I can't remember exactly. I think it's the second one. But um, yeah, certainly there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Uh, and I know you have been chatting about this whole topic as well of stable coins. So I thought it would be good to you know, explore this topic together on is it bullish or bearish for Bitcoin and you know, some of, what are some of the things that we need to think about with stable coins. So perhaps just uh, to start off, just for listeners who might, might not be so familiar, what is a stable coin and what are some of the main ones? Yeah, I mean, this is actually... A topic of debate: what, what a stable, you know, what the definition of a stablecoin is. What should we even call them? You know, it's not even necessarily settled that stablecoins is the thing to call them. Uh, but basically, the way I define them is a tokenized representation of a fiat currency that circulates on chain. Uh, and so that's really the the simplest definition. And then. You know, there's a number of different ways they try and target the return profile of that sovereign currency. The main way is just by being redeemable for units of that currency that are immobilized in a commercial bank. 
Uh, but there's other ways. Uh, some of them are, in my opinion, you know, pretty crazy and not likely to work. You know, the algorithmic uncollateralized model. I don't think we've ever really seen that work. I think it's unlikely to work. And then there's the maybe the more interesting approach, which is to take some crypto collateral and uh, which is volatile and use that basket to create uh, something which is more stable in terms of its risk profile uh, with sort of algorithmic um, risk management systems. And you could, in theory, do that against Bitcoin. And then there's a final way to create stable coins, which is basically to create a pair of uh, a Bitcoin derivative and a spot position. So you could have a short and a long position paired up together. And uh, that's one way to, to create a stable coin, which we're seeing out there. Uh, so there's a bunch of different ways to do it. But the sort of key idea is, hey, public blockchains are great for moving value around. Wouldn't it be great if we could move stable value around? I know a lot of Bitcoiners don't like this concept, but the truth is it really is catching on. And, you know, it's sort of one of the early industry killer apps. I see. And it's probably also good to contextualize here what's the kind of split in terms of the stable coins are they i presume they are mostly well tether is probably the elephant in the room here right like that most most of the stablecoin volume would be of that type right like the type where yeah. it's there's you know us dollars in a bank account somewhere and these stable coins represent some you know claim or some yeah they're meant to, the value is meant to reflect those right yeah, that's by far the most popular model is the sort of fiat collateralized or convertible model, whereby in theory, by holding this token, you could, again, in theory, redeem it for units of actual currency in a commercial bank somewhere. Now, with Tether and actually other ones, there's complications. Not everyone can necessarily redeem it. You might have to be kind of a special entity or you might have to have a certain threshold in order to do that redemption. But it's still the possibility of redemption, which is the thing that keeps it trading around $1. Yeah. And so who are the main users of these products? Well, it's kind of hard to directly apprehend that, right? Because if you're using a stablecoin, you know, you're outside of the traditional financial system and you might be outside of that system for a good reason. You know, you might be an import-export business operating on a cross-border between Russia and China, and you have very good reasons to not, you know, make your transactions known to the authorities. Uh, and so you are strongly incentivized to not sort of broadcast your usage of stablecoins. Um, I think unambiguously, the biggest consumers of stablecoins are just entities that are active in the cryptocurrency markets, so traders, hedge funds, proprietary funds, uh, arbitrage funds, um, market makers, you know, these are the entities that need crypto denominated liquidity. Um, and they need, you know, an arbitrage or market maker firm, you know, they'll be active on dozens of exchanges at the same time. They need to manage their collateral. They might have a preference to hold it in fiat terms. They may not want to be directionally long Bitcoin at all times. So they might prefer dollar-based collateral. And so, you know, stable coins would be a good choice for them. You know, they get the settlement assurances of using a public blockchain, but they also get to manage their risk in terms of volatility. 
Uh, so that's a huge, huge consumer of stable coins. Increasingly, we just also have regular old businesses denominating their balance sheet in stable coins. And uh, you know, more and more, the firms that we invest in as a venture fund will ask us for a stable coin denominated investment. They don't want to get bank wires. They want USDC. And we've begun to do that as well. And so what we're seeing is the whole supply chain of some of these early stage businesses is flipping from commercial bank liquidity to on-chain liquidity. And it flips, you know, because they'll receive investment in stablecoin terms, and then their expendis- their expenditures will be denominated in stablecoin terms. You know, this crypto industry is kind of a globalized system where, you know, it, there's less sort of geographic hubs of consequence and the talent is much more globally dispersed. For payroll, for instance, for a global audience, it actually is generally more convenient to use something like USDT or USDC uh, to pay people if you know you have employees in 15 different countries. That's probably cheaper and easier than the correspondent banking system. And so you see the whole kind of supply chain uh, of certain businesses flipping from being commercial bank based to being sort of crypto liquidity based. Uh, so that's another really interesting new genre of stablecoin consumer that we've seen emerge this year. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it was an easier question to answer kind of two years ago when it really was just traders that were using stablecoins. And today it's just all kinds of businesses. I mean, we have fintech providers. Uh, you know, we've invested in some of these businesses that are giving stablecoin access or intermediate access to stablecoins in countries where there's currency crises, um, you know, as kind of a fintech product. So, yeah, the phenomenon is really taking off and there's a really heterogeneous set of entities that actually use these things. I think the probably the obvious question that is going through many listeners' minds, they might be thinking, well, hang on, why don't why don't they just pay directly in Bitcoin, but denominated in USD? And uh, I can guess there's probably some good answers for that. Uh, what would you uh, speculate, or if you know, uh, what do you? Why do you think that is? Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's a very fair question. It just, I would say the probably the main reason is the mental transaction cost of introducing a new numerator. Um, now, Bitcoin, you know, probably about. 50 to 100 million people worldwide um, are familiar with Bitcoin, but probably, you know, half of the world's population is familiar with the dollar. Uh, You know, the dollar is the de facto global reserve currency. And then even in countries where dollars aren't the local currency, people still kind of know how to price things in dollars and they have an appreciation for the dollar. And this isn't like my love letter to the Federal Reserve or anything. It's just, you know, a statement of reality. Um, as a unit of account, the dollar is very popular. So I think people are just more comfortable receiving payments in dollar terms. You know, at this state of Bitcoin adoption, of course, you know I expect that to change in the long term as Bitcoin becomes much more ubiquitous. But for now, stablecoins are kind of an intermediate or bridge asset where people are realizing, hey, you know, public blockchain infrastructure is actually a more convenient way to do business, uh, and especially on a cross-border basis. But they haven't fully become used to Bitcoin as their unit of account. So for this transitional period, it's a really suitable asset, basically. 
Right. And I presume it's also a volatility aspect of it also that they would prefer to, you know, hold USD because maybe their expenses are in turn in USD in terms of their rent or their other, you know, food and other living costs. Yeah, not everyone is like us and, you know, willing to tolerate the volatility of Bitcoin. Uh, so, and, you know, for payments, while payments are in flight, you don't necessarily want the exchange rate to be changing dramatically. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's good reasons to use the dollar. I mean, my view is that these things are strongly mutualistic. And so I don't see crypto dollars or stable coins as being a threat to Bitcoin in any way. Uh, I think they're kind of supportive of each other. Yeah. And my understanding is also that it's, you know, there are traders who are using it to get around the exchanges quickly in terms of, you know, doing the fiat leg a bit faster for them to arbitrage and things like that. But there's also the story of people in, let's say, in other countries around the world who want to get around capital or currency controls and in some cases get their money out of the country. Have you seen that in your uh, travels and your discussions in the industry? Yeah, I mean, this is an established concept today. Um, so Chainalysis, you know, a lot of people consider them to be villainous. They do put out some good research. So I would uh, encourage your listeners to look at their report where they find uh, with, and, and I have no reason to doubt their methodology. I think it's probably quite sound. They find about $50 billion worth of capital outflows from China um, taking place in, in tether terms. So these are real numbers, you know, and so that's a story about evading capital controls. And now, you know, the Chinese government may not like that, but we're talking about a new epic in payments technology. I mean, you know, we're talking about digital bearer assets. Uh, and so this is their manifestation. This is what people to choose to, to use them for. Uh, and that's just a reality. So China, you know, and if you look at tether transactions, you can see mostly they happen during Asian trading hours. So they're very, very popular as an alternative kind of payment system and a way to offshore wealth uh, from countries that are engaging in monetary repression. Uh, a more direct answer where I have firsthand experience would be in places like Latin America, Argentina in particular, Venezuela and Colombia. In those three countries, the currencies are very weak. Uh, there's a big kind of Venezuelan diaspora, which is internally displaced within Latin America. Um, there's a number of startups that are using, so there's a lot of Bitcoin there, but there's also a lot of number of startups that are using stable coins um, to give people a dollar savings device. Now, there are dollars that are present in those countries, physical dollars, but they're kind of hard to get your hands on and they aren't necessarily in the right denominations. There's a lack of small denomination bills. And of course, you know, dollars are easy to seize. And um, there is Bitcoinization occurring, of course, but there's also uh, a movement where people are engaging in this sort of crypto dollarization where they are getting exposure to dollar-based products through public blockchains. And now Bitcoin is critical in this whole process. But what people are really after, for the most part, is dollars, and you know they're seeking dollars as a way to um, conduct remittances, you know, move money around uh, without asking for permission, but also just to as a wealth preservation device. 
Um, so we're seeing, you know, we've invested in startups active down there doing exactly that. Uh, I think fintech experiences that are built on top of crypto dollar rails are going to be a much more pervasive concept in the next five years. Yeah, so it's a range of different people who are using these stable coins, whether it's traders or companies who want to get funded in stable coins or people in the developing world who want to get around capital and currency controls. So my understanding as well is with some of the you know, the South American story is that there are all kinds of different ways people are using different payments, whether that's things like Zelle or some of these other, you know, just normal fiat banking dollars. Uh, but this is just now presenting another option for people who want to try to, you know, maybe they're not necessarily looking for the maximum level of censor- censorship resistance, but they're just using some of these different bank accounts and so on. And this is just another way of helping, I guess, maybe we can think of it like greasing the wheels, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, Zelle is very popular in Venezuela. You're absolutely right. But Zelle is also created by a consortium of US banks. And those banks aren't really too keen on having end users in Venezuela because there are no formal US sanctions on the country of Venezuela, but there are sanctions on members of the Maduro regime. And it's kind of like taint, if you think about taint in the network graph. It's <laughs> yeah. basically the same concept. Like if you go to the coffee shop where, you know, which is run by, you know, the nephew of the minister of transport and he is, happens to be sanctioned, you know, there's a risk that you inherit that as well. So you become tainted by association and then you get deplatformed from all of your Western fintech and payment apps. And so that happens a lot. I mean, Wells Fargo has been on a real campaign to basically deplatform the Venezuelan users of Zelle. So Zelle is, you know, it's good UX and people really seem to like it, but it's very much exposed to what the banks want to do. Now, stablecoins have bank relationships, most of them, the fiat convertible ones, you know, those ultimately are claims on dollars in a bank. You don't need to interface with a bank to use a stablecoin. You just need to acquire it on the open markets or receive it in an on-chain transaction. You don't, you know, 99 plus percent of stablecoin transactions don't involve, you know, facing off against the bank directly or against the issuer. Uh, So they are kind of less encumbered than, you know, commercial bank relationships. And I know people talk about the freezing possibility. Tether has frozen couple hundred addresses in its history. Uh, USDC has frozen a small handful. So that does happen, but it's, you know, nowhere near as pervasive as, uh, you know, deplatforming from, you know, the financial system. Uh, So it's certainly not as sensor resistant as Bitcoin. Now there are stable coins that you can look to, which probably have slightly better sensor resistant qualities like DAI, which is built against, you know, crypto collateral. And in theory, you could do the same with Bitcoin. You could probably figure out how to build a stable coin uh, using DLCs or, you know, other smart contracting technologies to build a dollar denominated asset, which is backed by a basket of Bitcoins, which would also be pretty trustless. So I and I expect someone to make that in the next year or so. So there are, you know, even within the stablecoin space, there's a bit of nuance in terms of, you know, the the settlement assurances you have. 
Yeah, that's an interesting idea there as well. I recall from uh, one of my relatively recent episodes with Nadav Cohen from Short Bits, he spoke about exactly that kind of idea using discrete log contracts to do a similar kind of thing with Bitcoin. Uh, so I think also probably just more broadly with the whole space, it's probably actually one other point I wanted to touch on was around the compliance aspects. So you were mentioning there uh, in you know, AML, well, it's usually AML laws and sanctions laws that we're talking about here. And typically one of them is, uh, I think it's called politically exposed persons, right? And so that's where this whole idea of if you're a politician or you're a senior level bureaucrat or something, and then your family might be also implicated in that and blah, 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 right? But with stable coins, it's kind of more like the compliance seems to be occurring at the entry and the exit points. And then once you're kind of inside that system, it seems to be a little bit more of a freewheeling system wouldn't you say yeah yeah so this is anybody that looks in a stable coin is long enough eventually has this realization and it's like oh wow like this is actually a little bit different from the way that the financial system works right or even something like paypal right pretty much every transaction on paypal um you know contains metadata and identity information and paypal has the right you know and they take advantage of this to freeze any of those transactions. In fact, I sent a joke PayPal transaction to uh, my friend Naraj of Coin Center, and I think I made the memo field something like, you know, North Korea um, and like Persian rugs, just to see what would happen. And they they froze it. <laughs> you trying to get right? his account canceled? Uh, and uh, so you know, every single transaction in you know most you know mainstream fintech apps is effectively surveilled or you know risk analytics are being run against them. Now in stablecoins as you say those egress and ingress transactions where you are creating or redeeming stablecoins there's KYC involved there. But on the internals of the transaction graph those transactions that are actually occurring on you know either bitcoin on the omni protocol or on ethereum as ERC20 transactions or even on tron which is popular for stablecoins for some reason those P2P transfers are really not meaningfully being surveilled. There's not a lot of identity information that can be associated with them because it's pseudonymous. So on the internals of the transaction graph, you have a situation where it much more resembles actual digital cash in the same way that physical cash transfers do not carry any surveillance. Uh, and, and basically, P2P stablecoin transfers on chain much more closely resemble physical cash transactions and they have less in common with you know these transactions on these digital payments networks that we're used to and it's kind of a startling realization uh jp koenig who is not a bitcoiner but he writes fairly intelligently about payment networks has called this the permissioned pseudonymity model and it's honestly a really big outstanding question whether you know, the state or regulators are going to take a look at this and realize what's going on and say, okay, we have to put an end to this. Yeah, that's an interesting question because if they allow this to carry on, well, then it just kind of helps this overall greasing of the wheels, if you will, around in and around the exchanges of the space. And so it allows all sorts of kind of hack workarounds in some ways. Whereas if they do clamp down harder, then obviously it becomes more difficult for people to 
kind of get money in and out of exchanges and move it around and do all these other kind of on the side things and other services that are operating on a more stablecoin basis, like stablecoin lending and so on. Yeah. And honestly, I honestly don't know how regulators would build regulation into stablecoin networks. You know, fundamentally, we're talking about blockchains, which are pseudonymous. Uh, I'm not sure how you would try and inject identity information. And, you know, currently stablecoin issuers operate on a a blacklist model, right? Where they will blacklist certain addresses and freeze those funds. You know, if, for instance, they get a subpoena from law enforcement and it says, hey, this is a, you know, entity that hacked an exchange, you know, could you immobilize these funds? But the, you know, you can't transition that really easily to a whitelist model where default no transactions are permitted unless you know you make yourself known to the issuer the whitelist model would just make these networks not work so i don't know functionally what it would even look like for regulators to try and grapple with this yeah i guess um that's a tougher one to answer uh and i would also like to just get a bit of context here in around uh, the volumes that we're talking about here, like what kinds of volumes are we looking at in terms of stable coins versus, say, Bitcoin volume? Stable coins will do currently, collectively, all of the stable coins are doing about $5 billion worth of settled value every single day. So, pretty meaningful. That's up from effectively zero uh, a couple years ago. Now, Bitcoin is doing also about $5 billion of settled value per day. Um, now, the thing to note, though, is that Bitcoin's aggregate market cap is you know, north of $300 billion. The sort of aggregate market cap of stablecoins is closer to $25 billion. So you, know, you can see that stablecoins have a much higher velocity. They're turning over more often, more frequently, whereas Bitcoin has a much lower velocity. So what this sort of tells us is that they're doing e- roughly equal amounts in terms of settling value every day, but stable coins are doing so with the whole supply turning over more frequently, which shows that they're being employed more as kind of means of payment, whereas Bitcoin is this, you know, this more slow-moving wealth storage mechanism. Back to the show in a moment after a message for the sponsors of the show. So Unchained Capital are building Bitcoin-native financial services, and they use multi-signature as part of their products. So if you are looking to improve your security to multi-sig, well, multi-signature is a great option that Unchained can guide you through. And so if you want the white glove treatment, their team will teach you about multi-signature, they'll ship you two hardware wallets, they'll answer your questions and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault through their concierge service. And if you use the code LAVERA, you get a discount on that also. Unchained are also offering an OTC desk for purchases $50,000 or higher, and those purchases go straight into your multi-sig vault. This is a great choice for anyone looking at self-directed Bitcoin retirement accounts, or if you're a company looking to move Bitcoin to treasury. Unchained Capital offer advanced business accounts and a range of services to help you move your corporate treasury to Bitcoin and do it in a way where you control the private keys. Go and check out unchained-capital.com to find out more. Next is CypherSafe. 
at cyphersafe.io producing the cypher wheel product this is a metal seed backup product for your bitcoin hardware wallet or if you've just got a seed that you want to keep backed up and you want to make sure it's fireproof and it's waterproof rust proof pet proof and tamper evident the cypher wheel comes in a wheel shape and you get some tiles and essentially put in four tiles for each word of your bip39 seed and make sure you or your loved ones have access to your bitcoins if an accident occurs if your place went up on fire or some other disaster were to occur make sure you're looking out for yourself also there's a nice new product coming out next week which i'll be speaking about also so go and order your cypher wheel over at cyphersafe.io and use the code lavera for a discount okay so that's uh, around the volume of bitcoin uh, sorry of the volume of stable coins in relation to bitcoin um, and so I think it's also a good point now to explore the bull and bear cases for stable coins and whether they are you know, bullish for Bitcoin or bearish for Bitcoin. Do they work with it or are they in some way detracting from Bitcoin demand? Now, I know you are more on the bullish side, but let's, let's first explore some of the bearish arguments, right? So maybe one of the bearish arguments would be, oh, it's detracting from Bitcoin demand, as some people might just stay in stable coins rather than using bitcoin what do you yeah. think yeah no i mean uh that, honestly that's already happened to a certain degree i mean if you look at exchange volumes you look at the pairs that are traded globally you look at exchange reserves you notice that a lot of these what were formerly traded against bitcoin all these exchanges with altcoin pairs and derivatives with bitcoin being the more popular asset i guess the either the base pair or the quote pair, I'm forgetting which one it is. Uh, Bitcoin was the de facto reserve asset of the crypto industry kind of from inception, right? And over the last couple of years, exchanges, many exchanges became tetherized. So tether became the base pair. And all of these uh, markets were expressed in tether terms. And the main collateral that was held on these exchanges uh, was, was tether effectively. So you had some purist exchanges like BitMEX, they were a purist exchange. They never had any stable coins on there. The only way to get collateral onto the exchange was in Bitcoin terms. Um, but you know now they've shrunk a little bit and other newer exchanges like Bybit and FTX, you know, they all use Tether right as the main form of collateral and the main way to make a deposit. And you know a lot of them quote their markets in Tether. So this has actually already happened. But what's interesting is here we are right back at all-time highs for Bitcoin. So this kind of implies that, yes, some of this reservation demand for being the reserve asset for altcoin trading and for derivatives trading, some of that reservation demand was effectively removed and was you know, moved into Tether, basically, and, and other stable coins, right? But this hasn't really affected Bitcoin. Bitcoin is still fine. Uh, so it's just the nature of Bitcoin that's changing a little bit. It's more of a sort of a global macro asset. It doesn't necessarily need that source of reservation demand. But yes, unambiguously, I think exchanges getting tetherized did remove a certain reservation demand from Bitcoin and probably had a bit of a price impact. It's you know impossible to quantify. Um, but you know the ultimate question is can stablecoin sustain this indefinitely and i would probably argue no i don't think that they have the same characteristics as bitcoin because stablecoins ultimately are someone's liability they're a liability of an issuer 
in most cases of a commercial bank. And the, you know, that's not a great property to have for a monetary good. You know, pure monetary goods like gold and Bitcoin are no one's liability. Their value comes not from someone else promising to back it, but the value is solely market determined, which is the case for Bitcoin. So ultimately, a true reserve asset, the true monetary base asset at the base of that pyramid, you do want it to be uh, something that's trustless collateral, which stablecoins are not. So I don't think they can ever really fully replace Bitcoin as that key, you know, high powered collateral. Yeah, I think that's a really nicely put. Uh, that's really nicely put because ultimately they're not monetary competitors with Bitcoin in the longer term sense. They are just more like a a helping tool or a bridging tool that people are using in the here and now. Um, and also to the point about volumes and sizes, obviously there's this whole canard that seems to come up against some pe- from some people who are not that familiar with what Tether is and what some of these stable coins are. The typical argument is, oh, see, Bitcoin is being pumped by Tether. What do you think uh, on that kind of argument? <laughs> yeah, uh, so I'll go on the record here. I don't know if I've ever really addressed it on a podcast before, um, but... Yeah, I, I'd love to see some evidence of that. You know, I, I think the the onus and the burden of proof is on the people making the positive claim. You know, all the proof I've ever seen, all the evidence, talking to traders that have created hundreds of millions, in some cases billions of dollars worth of tra- tether, sorry, of tether, is that there is a counterparty there. They are using bank wires. You know, they're moving real fiat currency through the commercial banking system around to create and redeem Tether. Um, you know, and I am not a Tether user. I personally have never used Tether. But, you know, I had Dan Matashevsky on my podcast a while back, and he told me that when he was at the Circle OTC desk, they created billions of dollars worth of Tether, and that's with bank wires, you know? So that's taking real dollars and wiring them to the counterparty and getting Tethers against those dollars and then redeem them on the other side. So... That's all consistent with Tether being, you know, at least in some sense, a real thing. Now, obviously, it's impossible to ascertain the reserve quality, and that's a huge shortcoming, which I totally agree should be addressed. Uh, and I'd love to see more transparency behind all of the stablecoin issuers, not just Tether. It's actually hard to get good, reliable information on the quality of the reserves for even the onshore US-based stablecoin issuers. But now this this notion that is taken a little bit further, which is that you know Tether is somehow responsible for the price of Bitcoin, is just preposterous to me. I mean, there's one study from Griffin and Shams which relied on kind of a timing analysis, and they found that during periods when Tether was being issued, Bitcoin's price rose in those periods, which is, you know, there's so many alternative expl- explanations that aren't consistent with Tether is somehow buoying the price of Bitcoin. You know, the obvious alternative explanation is, well, tra- you know, traders were engaging in dip buying and they used Tether to as a conduit to get into crypto exchanges, get into crypto liquidity. And they, you know, so it's no coincidence that Tether issuance was happening at the same time as they were placing their buy orders because they were using those Tethers to subsequently buy Bitcoin. So 
you know, there's there's very simple alternative explanations there. The other thing is, you know, part of their paper relied on this analysis of looking on-chain and seeing when there are high periods of on-chain volumes and, you know, for Tether and finding that, that correlated with Bitcoin price increases. But, you know, the other thing to point out there is price increases are synchronous and coincident with uh, high on-chain transfers just by their very nature. Because when price is going up, there's a lot of activity. Those arbitrage funds kick into high gear. So, you know, that's also something that can be very easily explained. So, look, I mean, I'm not going to deny that Tether could be doing a much better job of their transparency. And at this point, they're systemic to the whole crypto industry. So, like many others, I would love to see more transparency from them and their reserve quality. But I've also never seen any direct evidence whatsoever that tethers are somehow either unbacked or more perniciously being used to inflate the price of Bitcoin, which makes no sense. I mean, if you're tether and you could magically inflate the price of Bitcoin by printing unbacked tethers uh, without the market ascertaining that, what's to stop you printing the price of Bitcoin arbitrarily high? You know, why in that case are we only at 19,000? Why aren't we at 300,000? Um, you know, like the, the critics don't really have a plausible story to tell here. Um, so the other thing I'll mention is that there have been subsequent analyses that have focused on the same Griffin and Shams paper and found no correlation between no or no direct uh, effect between tether issuance and the Bitcoin price. Uh, one was by uh, Viswanath Natraj. Um, so, you know, the, the academia isn't you know, settled on this topic either. Yeah, and uh, it seems, I guess, just a historical comment, it seems that every run seems to have its little story as well, right? So 2013, and it was Mt. Gox and the Willybot. And then in 2017, yeah. the story people have is, oh, I see it was pumped by Tether. And then so even this um, kind of bull run, you're hearing some people saying, oh, see, it's GBTC, right? And maybe yeah. the, the, like we tell ourselves these little stories, but those aren't necessarily the full explaining factor. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing to note is that Bitcoin has was flat, you know, in 20, it was roughly flat from for a long kind of two year period here. Um, I mean, if, if you measure, you know, from sort of late 2018 to sort of earlier this year, um, whereas Tether was increasing by a full order of magnitude, it went from you know, about a couple billion in late 2017 to 25 billion today. So for a long period where Bitcoin was trading sideways, more funds were getting onshored onto Tether, um, partly due to this replacement that I mentioned, where uh, Bitcoin kind of ceased to be the crypto reserve asset or lost some of its qualities as the, the crypto industry reserve asset. So Tether was increasing by hundreds and hundreds of percent but Bitcoin was flat during that time. So that's completely inconsistent with this Tether inflates Bitcoin thesis as well. Right, I see. And uh, I guess, you know, if I was to put on my Peter Schiff or Nouriel hat, they would say, oh, see, they were just trying to pump it so hard and they needed to keep making all these tethers to even try to keep it the same. And But I think at some point, you're just never going to convince some people. And so you just have to let them uh, let them uh, wait until they're comfortable to actually see Bitcoin for what it is. Yeah, and people like one-dimensional explanations for price action. As you said, 
really bought. But no, nobody seems comfortable with the fact that Bitcoin is just undergoing this process of monetization and waves of adoption, and that it's you know a fundamentally kind of random process in terms of the you know the, how the key variables interlock. But it's also you know just a long-term secular process of growth, and rather people would instead lean on these incredibly you know <laughs> simplistic explanations of insidious market makers somehow manipulating the whole market and manipulating price upwards they they can't you know find it in their souls to believe the bitcoin is just this newly monetizing monetary commodity that's that's too difficult or complex of an explanation for them yeah and uh, perhaps at some level it uh they've they've already committed their minds in a certain direction and now to turn around and go back is maybe that's just difficult for people to do or it maybe they feel like it would make them look weak or whatever um one other point that you brought up uh just just on that there recently is systemic risk and blow up right so that could potentially be another bear case for stable coins in terms of bitcoin impact it might you know if one of these big ones, for example, Tether or one of the other ones, if there were to be some big systemic blow up, could that you know look really bad for the ecosystem? Yes, it could. And I think the big casualty would actually be long tail altcoins, which trade exclusively against Tether, right? So um, if you know, a lot of these marketplaces and exchanges don't have connectivity to the fiat system, and in fact, the reason they've been able to emerge is because stablecoins exist, right? So once stablecoins were in place, this new set of altcoin exchanges could emerge, right? And they have done so. They would be the big casualties, I think, if if Tether blew up. And that would eviscerate the liquidity for a lot of long-tail alts that are traded only against crypto pairs. They're not traded against, you know, there's no fiat kind of pairs for those altcoins. So they would be the big casualties, in my opinion. Now, the effect on Bitcoin is is more mixed. And I think what is very possible is that there would be an inflow of funds back into Bitcoin as a kind of safety net. Because if you know it emerged that Tether was kind of insolvent or you know not fully reserved or something, what are traders going to do with the Tethers that they hold? What is the most liquid pair that Tether is traded against? It's against Bitcoin. So I think that's where they flee. Now, it might be more challenging for them to flee back into their sovereign currencies, and they may not want to do that. So I think they flee into the alternative crypto reserve asset, which is truly liability-free and you know cannot be impaired by a lack of reserves the same way Tether can be. So my guess is that if anything happens to Tether, a lot of capital is going to flow back into Bitcoin as a safety net, the kind of the same way you have a global risk-off event in regular capital markets and capital flows into US treasuries, which are considered you know, the safest and most liquid asset. So I would say there's the potential for it actually to cause a huge capital inflow back into Bitcoin. And we're talking about roughly $20 billion worth of Tether, so it's a really material amount. Uh, so bad for crypto markets generally, but potentially good for Bitcoin as this liability-free base asset. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I think that's a really great way to put it. Uh, one other, I guess, kind of bearish argument, but it's not exactly. It's it's more just about there's different platforms and we're taking different kinds of 
technological risk when we use them. So obviously things like if you use some coin that is really centralized as the platform, then is there a risk that, you know, some rollback changes things for you or that potentially it is more amenable or likely to get shut down um, or to go down under its own steam? And then, you know, the stablecoin people are left kind of holding a bag if if they're using an altcoin platform to do that stablecoin with. So do you have any thoughts on that and how the market participants are I guess, evaluating that risk? Yeah, I don't think they're evaluating it, Stefan, to be honest with you. Um, you know, the most number of tethers that ever existed on Bitcoin was about 3 billion. Now, on Tron, there's double that today. There's 6 billion worth of tethers that circulate on Tron, which is kind of, they've got a, you know, a fixed validator set and it's, you know, pretty centralized in terms of the node validation and the consensus formation, right? I don't think it would be that difficult for a highly motivated state actor to interfere with Tron if they wanted, right? But you have more tethers circulating on Tron, lots more than ever circulated on the Omni protocol on Bitcoin. And on Ethereum, you have over $12 billion worth of tether. And you also have billions of dollars worth of other stable coins on Ethereum too, like USDC. There's another 3 billion of USDC on Ethereum. So I think the entities using Tether are just, they kind of take it as given that the blockchains that they circulate on are going to just function well in perpetuity. They don't seem too concerned about it. And they switch between them all the time. What they do is they use exchanges as these hubs to switch between Tethertron, Bitcoin Tron, or yeah, Tethertron, Bitcoin Tron. Why am I saying, why am I getting this wrong? <laughs> Tether Bitcoin, Tether Ethereum, and Tethertron. So they switch between them seamlessly. Uh, it seems like traders kind of treat it as the same asset, regardless of the actual blockchain infrastructure that it's circulating on. But yeah, I, I, it seems to me that people aren't really concerned with the underlying infrastructure. Um, and maybe they feel that if something were to go wrong, then the ultimate ledger would be managed by Tether itself. Uh, and you know, effectively, Tether maintains an off-chain ledger of their own where they can step in if something goes terribly wrong. I see. So at the end of the day, these things are just far more centralized anyway. So that's kind of most people are just going to the participants in the market are relying on that as their get out of jail free card if something were to blow up with Tron or Ethereum and so on. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, people already appeal to like Bitfinex and Tether when something goes wrong with Tether. And this is another thing when you see exchange hacks. Now, the fact that some of these stable coins have this reversibility, which is, you know, a bug in my opinion, but on stable coins, it's treated as a feature. Uh, this reversibility allows for the undoing of some, you know, negative events. Uh, so Tether has already begun to kind of play that role. Yep. So I guess we can, uh, I guess, say, well, look, these are more openly centralized. And so that's, you know, I guess even in the case of a blow up, they're just more centralized anyway. So it's like, it's just not going to, uh, yeah, hard to hard to kind of, 
uh, go from there. But uh, I guess those are probably the main bear arguments I can think of. Uh, actually, are there any other kind of bearish arguments you can think of while we're here before we go to bull arguments? Yeah, and this is very salient to our current discussions. But the other thing is that if you talk to a central banker about the cryptocurrency space and you ask them, you know, what are you nervous about? They almost always say stable coins. They typically don't say Bitcoin. I don't know if this has been your experience as well, but it's certainly a case with me. Central bankers are fixated on stable coins. And really, Libra is actually the one they cared the most about. But increasingly, also, you know, the, the, the stable coins that exist on chain. So, you know, stable coins have catalyzed a lot of, you know, keen investigation on the part of central bankers and financial regulators into the crypto space. And they could be the, you know, the, the element of this industry that actually gets governments to care about it and attempt to crack down on it. Because all of these central bankers are pretty afraid of not necessarily Bitcoinization, but involuntary dollarization, whereby they lose their monetary privilege because stablecoins become so frictionless and easy to acquire that there's a currency substitution that occurs in their country. And for sure, this is something that's happening in Venezuela today. It's happened historically in Ecuador, you know, not with crypto rails, of course, but with physical dollars. So it, it's not too far-fetched to think that this totally is possible. So the way that could affect Bitcoin would just be by causing a regulatory hammer blow to fall on the industry. Now, I think we all expect and hope that Bitcoin is sufficiently robust that it can deal with that if the time comes. But that's another part of the bear case is that the stablecoins provoke governments into cracking down pretty hard on the industry. Yeah, that's a good point. And so just to clarify there, I guess in some sense... The U.S. government is kind of happy that more people are going to use U.S. dollar, right? It's more other countries who are going to be unhappy about, you know, basically, historically, you had to use physical cash to try and U.S. dollarize. But now that people can do it with stable coins, that makes it more of a risk for them. And that's, you know, if you're the Venezuelan government, that's why it's more of a concern for you, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just easier to dollarize on on you know public blockchain rails uh and so potentially you know it could happen more aggressively right um on on your question about the u.s government i would say it's a little bit nuanced i mean the government does issue the world's reserve currency and they wield strong benefits from doing that but they don't want dollars to be percolating out into the world through a means that they don't control and you know currently they don't control stablecoin infrastructure it's you know, run as a protocol by a bunch of nodes. Um, and so that's also part of the reason we've seen a bunch of policymakers in the US express their misgivings about it, even if it is effectively adding demand to the dollar and, you know, potentially exporting the dollar overseas. It's doing it in a way that's outside the New York based correspondent banking system, outside of their surveillance apparatus. So my guess is that they're actually not too happy about it, all things considered. Right. And it may be different regulators and different parties who have different concerns. And so the ones who are more concerned, like, say, FinCEN, uh, might be more concerned um, because they have less visibility into their whole surveillance, financial surveillance network. 
Um, so I guess let's bring it to the bull arguments then. So the bullish case for stable coins in terms of their impact on Bitcoin, I guess the main one that I can think of is just that it, it, it just helps the overall liquidity and kind of greasing the wheels for people to move through the exchanges and through different uh, other businesses and products and services that can be built using stable coins that weren't otherwise possible with Bitcoin. Uh, what's your view on that kind of idea? Yeah, so that's undeniably a positive for Bitcoin. Just more liquidity, better connectivity between exchanges, so fewer kind of dislocations and in inter-exchange prices. The existence of stable coins mean that these arbitrage funds can operate in a capital-efficient way, uh, which is good for Bitcoin liquidity, right? And so I would say that's the number one way. But the number two thing I would point you to would be stablecoins might be penetrating a global audience of potential Bitcoin adopters before they have the experience of using Bitcoin. So right now, the first experience most people have with cryptocurrency is with Bitcoin. Um, and that's kind of been the default way that people get exposure to storing cryptographic information, storing value in the form of key pairs and getting used to that concept. But it could be the case that in a couple of years time, the de facto way, the default way that people get exposure to this concept, which is something that people need to, it's a transition people have to go through, understanding information as value. You know, we've never really had to deal with that before. The default way they might do that would be through a stablecoin lens. And I, I know Bitcoiners may not like hearing that, but it's totally possible in my mind that that is the more immediately addressable way that people get exposure to, you know, digital assets, basically. And I think that could actually be an accelerant for the whole concept and give you know let people go through that learning experience and then when they're ready you know they could level up and move to non-state monetary assets you know like bitcoin so i think that's another way is that it penetrates a slightly different niche it's people that maybe want dollars uh, and they're willing to consider this alternative infrastructure for those dollars and once they're onboarded into that and they're mentally ready then they can make the leap uh, to bitcoin uh, so that would be kind of the second way I think it could be really positive uh, for Bitcoin. Uh, the third thing, and this is already a feature of the market, is that stablecoins only exist because of Bitcoin. And a lot of these stablecoin pairs are only liquid in a lot of these markets also because of Bitcoin. There's plenty of stablecoin usage in Venezuela, but that market was bootstrapped by the local Bitcoin's peer-to-peer -peer market, where Bitcoin was obviously the main asset. So Bitcoin is this kind of non-state asset, which is available globally, you know, permanently. It's the asset against which stablecoins trade most of the time. So it, Bitcoin is the true, you know, ultimate clearinghouse of value, and then stablecoins are trading against Bitcoin. So it gives stablecoins kind of a liability-free pair to trade into. And the way I see it is, you know, we're going to have progressive ways of regulation here, and so the popularity of stablecoins is going to rise and fall over the years as regulators get more and less onerous. But Bitcoin will sort of always be there. And at the times when 
you know, nation states are being more hostile to stable coins, more value will flow back into Bitcoin. And then as things open up again, some value will flow back into stable coins as the perceived risk declines. And so I think you'll just get this back and forth. But the constant is that Bitcoin is always going to be there as this capital sink to, you know, to satisfy this demand and to be this, you know, monetary constant with stable coins waxing and waning around Bitcoin. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of a difficult concept to express, but Bitcoin's, you know, permanent presence in these markets is what permits stable coins to work. Uh, so they, they kind of, stable coins certainly need Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't need stable coins, but I think it does benefit from their existence. Yeah, very interesting argument. I think, I, uh, so essentially you're saying that they have some kind of a symbiotic relationship. They're both benefiting from each other. Absolutely. And the thing I didn't mention is that I believe that stablecoins will be issued against Bitcoin in the future. And we probably aren't going to have to wait that long for it to happen. There's already stablecoins being issued uh, against spot Bitcoin, where you take a synthetic, you, you short Bitcoin, and you have a spot long position. And that bundle of the two creates a dollar stable position, right? So that's one way that people are creating stablecoins against Bitcoin. But you could also do it in a maker style. And there's no doubt in my mind that our smart contracting ability on Bitcoin is going to progress in the near future to a state where it's totally possible to build the equivalent of Maker on Bitcoin. And then we'll just take you know, the most successful concepts in DeFi and then apply them to Bitcoin in a trust-minimized way. Uh, so my, and, and if you look at DAI, DAI is one of the most popular stablecoins on Ethereum. It really punches above its weight in terms of its velocity. So I think the Bitcoin equivalent would also be pretty popular, honestly. Uh, you know, a native, you know, Bitcoin native dollar stable asset, uh, you know, facilitated and issued against Bitcoin collateral. I think that is a good idea. And so I do expect that in the future, Bitcoin will be a reserve asset for the issuance of stable coins. And of course, that will increase the reservation demand for Bitcoin. So that's kind of the final thing is, you know, stable coins just, you know, they are kind of strong evidence of the fact that people desire dollar-denominated liquidity on-chain, um, and they're willing to, you know, issue it against kind of crypto collateral. And I think Bitcoin is obviously the best form of collateral on-chain because it has the best volatility characteristics and it, you know, has obviously the best monetary characteristics. So I do think it's going to be another way that proves out the value of Bitcoin as this base monetary asset. So taking that as given then, is that an is there an implication there in terms of the kinds of software and Bitcoin wallets that people should be using? I guess as one example I can think of right now, Blockstream Green, right? You can have liquid tether on there and you can have Bitcoin on there. So is that a sort of scenario that might play out over the next few years where there might be some people who come into the they come into just having some tethers in a you know a phone wallet and then eventually they start seeing obviously number go up and then they start thinking oh hey why am i holding this usd tether thing i can hold some bitcoin as well and do you see that as a plausible story or as a p potential method that you that software and bitcoin wallets should be built out in well i'm not going to prescribe any behavior to wallet developers they definitely understand their users far better than i do 
But there is something very convenient about multi-asset wallets, especially, um, you know, Blockstream Green, great, great example. I hear Liquid mentioned all the time in terms of, you know, more sophisticated, complex smart contracting on Bitcoin. I expect that some of the first stable coins issued against Bitcoin will be Liquid assets that exist on the Liquid sidechain. Um, so I, I also think we're going to get a flavor of wallets that give you options in terms of de-risking your Bitcoin position. So maybe you'll be able to flip a switch and change your Bitcoin position to being market neutral and you know effectively flat in dollar terms. And maybe behind the scenes, there's some complicated on-chain derivative transaction that is going 1x short on that Bitcoin. And so you've created an effective stable coin against Bitcoin collateral. You know, so those are the kind of things that are possible with more development, especially in the DLC space. I think Taproot is also going to give us some more tools to do this. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I have no doubt in my mind that you know smart developers are going to figure this out and we're going to have a much broader arsenal of sort of risk management products that are native on-chain, Bitcoin-based, and you know, trust-minimized. Yeah, that's a really interesting vision that we might see with a kind of Bitcoin DLC wallet-enabled vision there, as you were saying, or something, something related, perhaps, um, uh, or a similar idea, I guess. Uh, one other topic that I think we obviously should hit as well, which is stablecoin regulation. So recently, there was this whole you know, blow-up on Twitter about the Stable Act. So can you tell us a little bit about... You know, first of all, what is that? And then what was your uh, reaction to that? Yeah, so there's a lot of interpretations and the authors of the Stable Act did themselves no favors by spouting off on Twitter, which really muddied the waters, honestly. But the Stable Act at its core basically says stablecoin issuers need banking licenses to operate. And their interpretation of stablecoins is that these issuers are engaged in a banking depository style activity and as such, they should be regulated by the state as banks. And you know anybody that understands what it's like to get a bank charter knows that this is kind of a, an absurd proposition because bank charters are incredibly difficult to come by. They require you know something like you know twenty million in paid up capital, and it's you know nobody gets bank charters anymore, at least in the U.S. Um, the the number of banks that exist just continues to decline year over year. And there's been a really stark decline in the number of banks uh, in the U.S. over the last kind of 40 years. Um, and so what this really is, is, is an attempt to nationalize a kind of private sector industry, which has been doing really well, you know. Um, and I'm, I'm ultimately sympathetic to the core idea, which is fiat-backed stablecoins should probably be more transparent about the reserve quality, and they should give depositors assurances that the stablecoins are actually backed on a one-to-one basis with actual dollars in a bank account. I'm totally sympathetic to that idea. And it you know, should be the case that there is some mechanism for them to prove that. Um, I would be in favor of something like the FinTech Charter, which Brian Brooks proposed, which would be a modified bank charter, which takes note of sort of the idiosyncrasies of a FinTech provider or something like an expansion of the Special Purpose Depository Institution, which is really suited for stablecoins, SPDIs in Wyoming, they are only entitled to hold a full reserve. 
of the asset that they're custodying. So they can't operate fractionally. And so that's kind of what a stablecoin is. Stablecoins are meant to not be fractional reserves. They're meant to be fully reserved. So there's a lot of interesting proposals for alternative bank charters. But the problem with the stable bill is that it was just trying to treat these things like actual regular commercial banks that engage in maturity transformation, engage in lending, and are sort of heavily regulated as a consequence. But stablecoin issuers, to my knowledge, don't do any of this stuff. They just immobilize deposits in commercial banks and they issue IOUs that circulate on-chain against those deposits that are convertible for them. So the instrument that is being proposed as the solution to this issue of sort of auditability is an incredibly blunt and ill-fitting one, in my opinion. So that's the problem with the act, is that it takes this really archaic view of stablecoin issuers as banks and you know tries to force them into that template, which basically makes no sense. Yeah, and uh, so it seems that um, the creators of that and the advisors of that maybe are not as familiar with how you know, Bitcoin and the you know, and this world works. And so it just, but from what I've also read of the analysis from, uh, I believe, Coin Center and also Preston Burns analysis, it seems as though this particular bill is actually unlikely to actually get you know, passed and become you know, law. But it seems that uh, this is now the, the, they're on this path and they'll probably keep trying, won't they? Yeah, and you know the odds of any proposed bill being passed is pretty vanishingly low. So you do have to contextualize it and look at, well, where are we in the cycle? You know, what's the political, you know, trends here at play? Like currently, we actually have a split chamber, right? The Senate is kind of Republican and the House is Democratic. So I doubt there would be bipartisan unity on this topic. And also, we have allies in the Senate and the House now. So. I think it would be unlikely for something like this to pass. It would also, it's actually more broad reaching in the language in the bill than just stable coins. It would actually affect fintech providers like Venmo, PayPal, any e-wallet where you can hold a balance. They would all be considered stable coins under this bill, which is preposterous. It's an abusive language, right? Nobody refers to those things as stable coins. You don't say, send me a to send me a $10 stablecoin transaction on Venmo. You just ask for your friend to Venmo you, right? So the bill's authors constructed it in such a way that it would actually capture all of this activity under a broad net. So it's just kind of a poorly constructed bill. I see. Yeah. And uh, I think some of the other lawyers in the space have spoken about how there are already a range of compliance issues with some of these stablecoins anyway. So you know, if government and regulatory agencies wanted to come after them, they could already use the already existing laws and things and try to clamp down in those ways and sort of try to uh, apply other kinds of AML whitelisting or other kinds of controls or try to force, in a similar way, force that square peg into the round hole, couldn't they? Yeah, we don't necessarily need new laws on stable coins, although various legislative bodies are proposing them, not just in the US. I would say it would be welcome to have a specific kind of bank charter, which would be useful, you know, which would suit stablecoin issuers. Because right now, the way they're regulated is they register as money service businesses with FinCEN, and that's that gives them obligations around money laundering, uh, you know, AML and so on. 
um, and KYC. And then they typically have to go after money transfer licenses in a bunch of states. And that is not a homogenous regime. You know, the, the, the process of getting those licenses on a state-by-state basis is pretty onerous. And the states aren't necessarily the best, you know, regulator for what those issuers are doing. Uh, and, you know, I, in my view, stablecoins are effectively narrow banks or sort of money market mutual funds. They should probably be regulated as such. Like, I'm not calling for more regulation, but if there is a regulatory instrument that's created, it should just be mindful of the way that they actually operate and not treat them as banks, which they really are not. So I guess stepping back a little bit more broad, what's your, I guess, view on stablecoins over the next five years? You think they're going to wax and wane through these cycles, uh, but it sounds to me like your view is fundamentally bullish stablecoins, but in a way that's also bullish Bitcoin. Well, the demand for stablecoins has obviously been proven out this year. I mean, we went from 4 billion in sort of outstanding stablecoin float to start the year to 25-ish billion today, which is just unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. I mean, those numbers in any context other than the crypto industry would be eye-watering. So there's no question in my mind that people want dollar-denominated liquidity on you know, largely sensor-resistant blockchain rails in a globalized format, such as you can hold those coins in your own possession with a private key. So you know, digital bearer assets, you know, cash-like digital bearer assets, no doubt in my mind that there's huge global demand for that. Now, the big, big question is, is the hammer going to fall on the likes of Tether and maybe even USDC and all the other issuers? Are these regulators going to get their way and, you know, come down on the issuers? If that's the case, the only stable coins that will be left will be the crypto collateralized stable coins like DAI which are much harder to regulate against because they are just merely created through smart contracts as opposed to commercial bank relationships. So there's one scenario where there are adverse regulatory outcomes for stablecoin issuers, and the only model that really survives is that crypto collateralized model. And then there's another scenario where stablecoin issuers continue to exist in this gray zone and continue to be reasonably private and reasonably sensor-resistant, albeit not perfectly so, and they just keep growing. But you know, I do wonder what the end state of that. The only thing that constrains their capacity is the balance sheet of the commercial banks that are holding the reserves. Uh, but that's sort of almost unbounded. Uh, so one wonders what happens if you get to 100 billion in stablecoin pre-float or 200 billion. There's probably a point where it becomes systemic and where bank regulators worldwide try and triangulate the banks that are holding reserves for these things. So I don't think it can grow indefinitely. Um, I do think there's like a sort of Damocles hanging over the, the at least the fiat-backed stablecoin industry in its current format, um, absent any sort of regulatory clarity. Um, so I don't have a firm answer on it, uh, but I do feel that we're sort of we're waiting for a hammer to fall, which hasn't fallen yet. Um, so, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know what form it's going to take, but I, you know, I don't think Tether, for instance, can exist sustainably for the next five years. 
I see. Yeah. And so I guess the fiat-backed stablecoin phenomenon may be a short or medium-term one and then potentially maybe uh, putting on the optimistic for Bitcoin hat, maybe uh, people work on some kind of DLC version of a Bitcoin stablecoin and then if there's a crackdown from a regulatory point of view on the fiat stablecoin style or the fiat-backed stablecoin style, then um, maybe that's like the stress to the system that uh, causes the adaptation of a uh, you know the Bitcoin style stablecoin. Yeah, that's very well put. I think that's very very plausible, and I do think that the more you know truly kind of cypherpunk stablecoins that are issued in smart contract form against you know liability free collateral, those are the best ones. Those are the most robust ones, and those are the ones that are likely to last the longest. The fiat-backed ones are fragile, so they can pop out of existence at any minute. Uh, and you know, regardless of the regulatory wins at play, I think we're going to figure out how to create stable coins on top of Bitcoin. And I think they're going to be a hit. Honestly, I think they're going to be a hit. So I'm pretty excited to see how you know developers figure out how to do that. Fantastic. Well, I think that's probably a great place to leave it. But of course, before we let you go, Nick, where can listeners follow you and find your work online? I'm not hard to find. Number one place is on Twitter, Nick underscore underscore Carter. That's two underscores. Fantastic. And I'll include the links in the show notes. Nick, thank you again for a very enjoyable discussion. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks for having me on again. I hope you enjoyed the discussion and I know that it may challenge the views of some people because they may not like the idea or be in agreement with the idea that stablecoins can actually have some form of symbiotic relationship with Bitcoin and actually be bullish on Bitcoin. But let me know your thoughts and of course get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 236 for this episode. Thanks and I'll see you in the Citadels.